And welcome to the Feeling Your Oats podcast. Whether it's great lives or great tragedies, or just showing up for the adventure, history that is told without being felt is minimized. Like food that is eaten without being tasted. What's the point? Tell the stories, feel the people, learn the lessons, be a better you because of them. Don't keep reinventing the wheel. Will you get some of the story wrong? Yes. Will the size of the fish increase each time? Probably. Will there be a different perspective? Of course. So what? When we stand on the shoulders of the past, we can see with greater clarity into our future. True stories well told can inspire, caution, entertain, and instruct. If you judge the yesterdays of history by today's standards, then you deserve the same. If you erase it, you will repeat it. Please come on in and make yourself at home. Say, while you're here... Can I get you something to think today? Boykin, Kershaw County, South Carolina, is a rural community of 100 people, located about nine miles south of Camden, and is nowadays known for an eclectic Christmas parade. A grist mill that began operation in the 18th century a skirmish that took place in the waning days of the war between the states, a shop that sells handmade brooms, and a handful of small restaurants housed in 19th century structures. The early settlement of Boykin was established because it was near a fine spring. In 1790, a small log school and a place for camp meetings was set up. Boykin was named for the family which settled there, and many of their descendants still live there. The early 20th century grist mill in Boykin was preceded by a series of grist and sawmills dating from the 1700s. Built around 1905, the current mill is powered by Boykin Mill Pond, which was itself created sometime before 1786. The pond was formed by the damming of Swift Creek. In 1786, the pond and surrounding land were platted for Robert English, who sold it to Samuel Boykin. Boykin then deeded a portion of the land to Israel Mathis for the construction of a mill. By 1792, Mathis had built the first known sawmill and grist mill on the tract. In 1865, the property was the site of a battle fought days after the Civil War had officially ended, which was April 9th, 
1865. Well, this belated skirmish was the last Civil War battle fought in South Carolina. As Union troops were destroying railroads and rail cars throughout the state at the end of the year, Confederate troops brought rail cars from neighboring Camden to safety at Boykin Mill. Union Major General Quincy A. Gilmore ordered a provisional division assembled under the command of Brigadier General Edward E. Potter. Potter was ordered to destroy the railroads in the area between Florence, Sumter, and Camden. The importance of the mission was pointedly made by Sherman's statement that those cars and locomotives should be destroyed if to do it cost you 500 men. Potter took command of the Provisional Division on April 1st, 1865 at Georgetown. The division numbered 2,700 men, composed of two infantry brigades and auxiliary troops. On April 18, 1865, Potter's troops met with the Kentuckians in the quiet town of Boykin, South Carolina. Confederate militiamen, under the command of Colonel James Fowler Presley, dug in their heels behind meager breastworks and awaited the arrival of the Union forces. The two working pieces of artillery were commanded by Lieutenant William Alexander McQueen and a patient of Sumter Hospital, Lieutenant Primera, an artilleryman from New Orleans. A third piece of artillery was too rusted to work. General Potter ordered Colonel Hallowell to attack from the left and rear. The 54th was a part of this flanking column. Unable to reach the rebels' position, the United States Colored Troops countermarched to where Colonel Brown's 1st Brigade was stationed on the main road. A Confederate volunteer remembered hearing the church bells in town ringing for an afternoon service as the battle got underway. Hallowell's brigade reached their comrades a little after two in the afternoon. When Potter's raid found its way to Boykin Mill, Confederate troops cut the dam and flooded the road. The Confederates held a strong defensive position in an abandoned fort. Sergeant Major Joseph Thomas Wilson later wrote about this fort. And no better position could be found for defense as the only approach to it was by a narrow embankment about 200 yards long, where only one could walk at a time. The 54th Massachusetts was given the job and sustained two killed and 13 wounded before Confederate troops, heavily outnumbered, ran from the field. The dead were Private James P. Johnson of Company F, a barber 21 years of age from Owego, New York, and First Lieutenant E.L. Stevens, the latter being the last federal officer killed in action during the Civil War. Stevens was killed by 14-year-old Burl H. Boykin, a member of the Confederate Home Guard whose family owned the land the Union troops were moving through. Confederate Lieutenant McQueen was struck in the shoulder, incapacitating him, while Lieutenant Pamera was killed by a mini-ball in the forehead. The Confederate forces fell back towards Sumterville, 
in the face of overwhelming odds. They made one more stand, but left the field of battle about six in the evening, ending the fight. Union troops pursued the fleeing Southerners unsuccessfully, and the mill was burned to the ground according to Major General William T. Sherman's scorched earth policy. The engagement proved to be the bloodiest battle of the campaign for the 54th, which had had the highest casualty rate of the operation. However, the two opposing units, Potters and the Kentuckians, continued to skirmish through April 19th at Dinkins Mill, where they fought the last major conflict of the Eastern Theater. The preliminary cessation of hostilities was announced to both sides two days later, though Confederate General Johnston did not officially surrender until the 26th of April, 1865. The Confederate force disbanded and returned to their homes after fighting the battles. Southern losses were six killed, seven wounded, two captured. Northern losses were four killed, 23 wounded. One witness, W.H. Garland of Fernandina, Florida, claimed at least 15 additional northern forces were dead where they had crossed the swamp and were buried in shallow graves. On the evening of February 3rd, 1860, Ralph Goodrich, an aspiring teacher in Owego, New York, received a letter from Alexander Leslie McCandless, superintendent of the Pine Grove Academy in Camden, South Carolina. Uh, McCandless wants me to come immediately, Goodrich wrote in his diary. Uh, I shall start as soon as I can. Goodrich traveled by the first train to New York City, where he bought a ticket for Wilmington, South Carolina. His route would not be direct, however. His first hop was a short one by train to Philadelphia, where he caught a ferry across the Delaware to a horse-drawn omnibus that took him to another train to Baltimore. From there, a ferry took him across the Susquehanna into Washington, D.C., where he caught a steamer into Richmond and then traveled overland to Petersburg and finally to Wilmington. This is where his trip into the southern interior really began. Through a barrier of limitless forest, shut out from every breeze so refreshing to the feverish cheek, at night we lay in a hammock tormented by mosquitoes, lulled to sleep by the endless rattle of locusts and the melancholy strain of the whippoorwill. By the time Goodrich arrived in Camden, he was homesick and tired. But he was happy to discover that the town seemed lovely, with its houses peeping out of groves, mounted on pedestals of brick, and surrounded with flowers of almost every description. The people were nice too, and although very sensitive about slavery, were almost universally polite. 
Between 1783 and 1865, Camden residents entertained themselves with ball playing, rifle shooting, and horse racing, as well as by holding patriotic celebrations, plays, society balls, monthly militia parades, quilting frolics, and dances. His opinion shifted drastically upon meeting McCandless. Leslie McCandless was a Camden institution, holding despotic over the town's major boys' school for more than 50 years. No other individual has left so deep an impression upon the men of Camden, noted one of his students. He might have meant this literally, as McCandless was merciless in his use of corporal punishment. Born in 1820 in New Jersey, McCandless had lost his parents at an early age and was sent to an orphanage in Charleston, South Carolina. There he proved such a phenomenal scholar that locals sent him to South Carolina College, where he again excelled. By 18, he had landed the position as headmaster of the Pine Grove Academy in Camden, a post he would hold for most of his life. Excuse me, class. Class! Some of McCandless's students would remember him fondly. His scholarship was superb, recalled one of his better pupils. He had perfect mastery of the Greek and Latin classics, also of French, German, Italian, and Spanish. It is doubtful if the state has produced a finer scholar. Well, that's all fine and dandy if you're up to snuff with old high and mighty McCandless. Yet, upon lesser students, which I seem to qualify for, McCandless's cuffs and buffets fell like rain, accompanied by such edifying epithets as you stupid jackass. His besetting sin was his temper which was violent and ungoverned. Y you'd think that folks would be a bit leery of Lucifer Leslie. Yet far from losing students on this account, McCandless gained them. Uh, he was noted for severity and force if necessary. Hence, uh, fathers would deliver over dull boys to his auspices to be dealt with at will. A term in purgatory would be about as inviting. A term in purgatory is a pretty adept description of Mr. Goodrich's experience in Camden. Although he was tired after his long trip, he right away found himself at McCandless's house. Hello. What might I do for you today, Con, sir? Uh, afternoon. I I'm here to see Mr. Leslie McCandless. Uh, Mr. McCandless is absent. 
I would be most happy to inform him of your visit upon his return. So Ralph headed back to his hotel. He had just settled in when one of McCandless's servants arrived to call him back to the house. Well, if it isn't Mr. Goodrich, I assume your travel was well enough. Uh, uh, yes, sir. Uh, no, I mean mosquito. Fine, fine. I expect you to start fresh on Monday morning. Y yes, sir. I look forward. And I will be attending your classes. If you are not as I deem worthy, well, we'll just go from there. A good evening to you, Mr. Goodrich. Uh, please see your way out. The Monday morning sessions went well enough, but when Goodrich turned to Latin and Greek, McCandless's specialties, <laughs> then came the tug-of-war. After the children filed out, McCandless told Goodrich that You are wholly incompetent to go on with those classes. I would prefer to dismiss you immediately, but kinder feelings condemn the idea. Yet, I am still going to slash your pay. You will no longer be pretending to teach the language classes, and you will need to find a new job in two months. Goodrich confessed to his diary, I, I'm feeling quite miserable, and have cursed the day that I wrote to him accepting the situation. I am alone among strangers and without money. Goodrich's students may have sensed that their new teacher was being thrown out with the bathwater by the principal. Regardless, they set upon him with their typical zeal. Ralph confessed to his diary, The boys are wild and very obtuse. One morning a group of them stuck a pen in my chair so that when I sat down it would stick into me. It stuck out about a half an inch. I discovered the pen in time, but I've had a hard time of it today. They are the worst creatures to govern I ever met. Well, laughed at by the other teachers, sullen and silent at dinner, openly disrespected by his principal and his students, Ralph was ready to condemn all of Camden. The people may be chivalrous, but they have appeared very cold to me. I have not been a warm spirit in their hearts, none but my roommate to sympathize with. Laughed at for my awkwardness, I am deserted indeed. Saturday, May 5th, dawned warm and pleasant. Ralph's time in Camden was drawing to a close. And having the day off, he took a long walk in the woods to Kirkwood, where he saw a beetle in the road and watched him roll a large piece of manure to the side of the road and dig a hole under it and take it by piecemeal into it. Goodrich fancied himself something of a naturalist and nature writer. I quietly observe what passes around me, he said, noting what seems to be an anomaly in society or what is picturesque in nature and treasure them up in the storehouse of memory. 
Ralph had returned home and settled into a cup of tea when he began to hear the rumors. On that Saturday afternoon in May of 1860, a May Day picnic outing and fishing expedition, comprised mostly of youth of the Camden and surrounding communities, had met at the Camden Depot and taken a locomotive from the South Carolina Railroad Company to Boykin. The large gathering was enjoying a lively and joyous picnic, fishing, and boating that afternoon on the banks of the Boykin Pond. Pouring out into the street, Goodrich found everything in an uproar. Men, women, and wagons, messengers and servants were sweeping past. most on their way to the Camden Depot. By the time Ralph reached the depot, the body, no, bodies, were already arriving. Please no! Oh my God, please no! Thirteen came in the first car. Ralph was grief-stricken. Hours before, he had been watching a dung beetle in the road and idly hating Camden and its children. Now, 24 of them were dead, including one of his own students. And he was united with the town in its pain. Something terrible had happened at Boykin Mill Pond, about 10 miles south. But what? What in the Sam Hill could have happened at Boykin's Pond to take the lives of so many of Camden's innocent youth? A long day of fun and sun, friends and conversation, fishing and games had been had on the shores of Boykin Pond. Along about 5 p.m. it was decided that a bit more than 50 people, but mostly comprising girls, including several young children, would set out on a flat boat on the 400 acre pond for a bit of a joyride to cap off their May Day festivities. About 100 yards off the shore, the boat hit a snag, or in other words, struck a stump just below the surface of the water. Ralph Leland Goodrich detailed the events in his diary. No immediate danger was apprehended, but then the boat began to take on water. Watching from the shore, their friends gradually stopped laughing and eating and then began to panic. Some few tried to swim out to them, but it was too late. Most of those on the boat were young women and girls whose skirts became extremely heavy as the boat began to sink. The boys on board tried to help, but most went down in a single mass, clinging to each other, as drowning victims do. It's possible the disaster might have been averted, Ralph said, had the passengers not panicked. But when they noticed the flatboat taking on water, everyone moved in mass to the one end, and the boat tipped. 
dumping everyone into the water. The findings of the coroner's inquest for the victims of the Boykin Mill Pond tragedy is short, if not sweet. For Amelia A. Alexander, age 20 of Camden, South Carolina, it reads, Upon their oaths do say that the said Amelia A. Alexander came to her death by accidental drowning in the mill pond of A. H. Boykin by sinking of a flat caused by the weight of between 53 and 56 persons. At least four sets of siblings lost their lives in the tragedy, including Samuel Young, age 7, Mary Ann Young, age 11, and Holly Young, who would have turned 19 the following day. Goodrich wrote of following a wagon load of four bodies that all went to the same house. He helped dress the corpses as the mother, whose almost every child was now gone, wailed. And these two, and these two, over and over and over. Her grief could not be measured, he later wrote. The number of deaths isn't definitive. While at least one slave was among the dead in the coroner's report, it is believed that others may have been on board and lost their lives as well, but gone uncounted. Ralph Goodrich wrote in his journal, Oh, what lamentations the night witnessed! Truly in the midst of life we are in death. It deeply impressed my mind, and the shock will not soon be removed. So teach me, O oh God, to number my days that I may apply my heart to wisdom. In the Camden Journal, an article announcing the tragedy was entitled, Terrible Catastrophe. Our community is overwhelmed in gloom in consequence of a most heart-rending disaster, which occurred on Saturday afternoon last about five o'clock, at Boykin's Mill, eight miles from town. In the morning, a party of ladies and gentlemen from Camden and the neighborhood met at the place mentioned on a picnic excursion, and after spending most of the day, concluded in the afternoon to get aboard a flatboat near the shore for the purpose of going out into the pond. Some 50 persons, it is sad, got on, and the flat was moved off and went about 50 or 60 yards out into the water, it is supposed that it struck a snag, which caused the boat to commence leaking, and in a few minutes, from the heavy weight upon it, commenced sinking. In the consternation which seized hold upon the party, many jumped overboard, and out of the number, we are pained to say that 24 persons were drowned, mostly ladies. Others, more unfortunate, were just saved through the timely assistance of those who had left the flat or went to the rescue from the shore. What a sad and calamitous termination of a festive occasion. The following is a correct list of those who are drowned and whose bodies have all been recovered. Miss Sarah Howell from Camden. Miss Selena Crosby from Camden. Miss Mary Hinson from Camden. Miss Louisa S. Nettles from Camden. Miss Elizabeth McKagan from Camden. Miss Margaret McCown 
from Camden. Miss Louisa McCown from Camden. Miss Amelia Alexander from Camden. Miss Alice Robinson from Camden. Miss Jane Kelly from Boykin. Two daughters and one son of Mr. Samuel H. Young from near Boykin. Miss Jenkins, daughter of Mr. M. D. Jenkins from Clarkson's. Mr. Jeremiah R. McLeod, Sumter District. Mr. Joseph Huggins, Sumter District. Mr. T. S. S. Richburg, Sumter District. Mr. Lucius R. Legrand from Camden. Mr. William C. Legrand from Camden. Mr. John A. Oaks from Camden. Mr. William McKagan from Camden. Mr. B. F. Hocott from near Camden. And two Negroes, making 24 persons in all. The pall of gloom is spread over the entire community, and there is not a single heart which we are sure does not feel painfully impressed with this sad and overwhelming calamity. On Sunday last, our town presented a scene which we pray it may never our luck to witness again. In every direction, distress and lamentation might have been witnessed, and our sympathizing, noble-hearted community We are all alive in ministration of kindness and sympathy, visiting the stricken homes of our bereaved and deeply afflicted fellow citizens. Everything that the most thoughtful and unremitting kindness and attention could suggest was promptly done to soothe the crushed and broken-hearted relatives of the unfortunate victims. Our spirit is overwhelmed by this crushing calamity, and it would be an idle mockery of words in attempting to give an idea of the grief which has been carried to so many kindred hearts by this sudden and most remarkable visitation. But he who does all things well is too wise to err, and too good to be unkind. Tis not ours to question, but adore. Ralph's journal entry for May 6th, 1860. Came home about half past five this morning, feeling sick and tired. I never want to witness such a scene again. It was heartrending. Attended church in the morning. Afternoon attended the funeral of ten at the Methodist church. A great many were present, and there were hundreds of carriages. Walked down to the burying ground, In lowering the coffin of one lady, the fastenings broke, and it fell and broke off the lid. The body nearly came out. It was solemn to see so many buried at once. So many people. So sad. There is a general lamentation. The loss almost entirely falls on the Methodist society. One young girl, a member of the Episcopalian denomination, was amongst the number of the dead. She was the staff and comfort of her poor old mother. Mr. Mangott worked very hard and is sick tonight. He went to bed early. May 7th, 1860. Rose rather late. Attended the funeral of 
Miss Selena Crosby at the Episcopal Church. Quite a large number present. Red Hiawatha. Mr. Ancrum here to dinner. Afternoon attended funeral at the Baptist Church. This occurrence has bound me closer to Camden, and I will depart with far different feelings than I otherwise would, and I hope with more Christian religious feelings. Oh, God be with me in this trying moment. Pour into my heart the balm of salvation. Give me stronger faith. May 9th, 1860. Wednesday. I did some trading this morning. Feel badly. I do not like to leave. I have become acquainted and the ties are hard to break. Left for Florida on the midday train. Life is a battle enshrouded in gloom. We share in its conflicts and haste to the tomb. Tis a journey of joy commingled with woe. Yet we have a hope, tis a pleasure to know, that when this pang and wild struggle is o'er, this sin-hated world will goad us no more. Thy young hath son's age is wrinkling thy brow, and the bloom of youth is flying thee now. But as you approach the age of decline, in the purer virtues the brighter you'll shine. You'll then find a solace through hope of a rest, in the bosom of God, in the land of the blessed. Ralph L. Goodrich, Camden, South Carolina, April 1860. Thank you for listening to the Feeling Your Oats podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it. Growing listeners will allow complete focus on content. Once again, I am just randomly being me. Until next time, remember, when your why is clear, your how is easy. And hey, we'll see you in the spring if the water's clear. Well, Dad blessed it. I sure enjoyed the visit today. If you gained something from it, be kind enough to follow us and leave a review. And do it right now. If you would, it'd sure be appreciated. Your comments have been so considerate and honestly left me blushing. And good night, those reviews make a big difference in the program's visibility. On the Apple platforms, you select the Go to Show option. And then click the circle plus sign at the top right to follow. Then scroll down below the episodes to leave some stars in a review. 
Them algorithms need all the help they can get so as I can disrupt more good folks like you. So I tell you what, if you got a friend or three that you just don't like very much, well, share this podcast with them and let us bug them for a while. And if you have comments or suggestions for future discussions, well, don't just keep them to yourself. We, we, we'd love to hear from you. You can DM us on our Instagrams at fyo.podcast. And thank you. there remember to download the family tree app and see how you are related to the people from today's episode all those links will be included in the show notes sometimes it's important to look a gift horse in the mouth your gift is your ancestry your superpower is their family history stories that make you not a one of us crawled out from under a rock regardless of what you've been told You have 4,094 grandparents, over 12 generations, with thousands of love stories, battles, difficulties, sadness, happiness, and expressions of hope for the future that allows you to be here today. We are the culmination of so many things we did not choose. It was designed that way. So be gentle with yourself and others. Take the time to learn yourself through your family history stories. There are innumerable tributaries flowing into the life experience that deceptively seems to be your own, but it's not. So think about that as you row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Russell M. Nelson stated, When our hearts turn to our ancestors, something changes inside us. We feel part of something greater than ourselves. (laughs) I concur. Thank you for joining me on another unbelievably true adventure. Find your family history superpower and activate it. Until the next time, bye.